arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And what we've seen as we've studied Mark's gospel over this last year or so, in the following chapters as Mark records, we've seen Jesus' incredible preaching and teaching ministry uh, that has been vindicated by the display of miraculous healings of all sorts of diseases and demon possession. For those who have ears to hear and eyes to see, the good news of God's kingdom reign has arrived in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, the one who truly is God the Son. And indeed, there have been several moments where Jesus has made direct claims to his eternal divinity. Uh, In chapter 2, he declared to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. And the Jewish leaders knew exactly what Jesus was claiming, uh, declaring him to be a blasphemer, saying, Who can forgive sins but God alone? Well, exactly. Towards the end of chapter 2 and then into chapter 3, there are two incidents where Jesus is charged by the Jewish leaders for working on the Sabbath, uh, the holy day of rest. Jesus again leaves no doubt about his identity. He declares himself to be Lord of the Sabbath. And he goes on to interpret the meaning of the Sabbath as being a day for doing good. And he demonstrates this meaning and his own authority uh, by healing a man with a crippled hand right in front of them with nothing more than uttering the words, stretch out your hand. And then in Mark 3 verse 6, we read these tragic words. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. And so in response to the shining light of Jesus Christ, these two opposing religious sects joined forces to plot his destruction. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. Well, they both heard his words clearly and they'd seen his works visibly and they had hardened their hearts towards him. At the end of chapter 3, we see the beginnings of their plans to discredit Jesus uh, when the scribes have the nerve to declare that Jesus performed his works by the power of the devil. They couldn't deny the works and so they tried to shift the focus. But Jesus dismantles the logic of their claim and he warns them that every, uh, that every sin may be forgiven except blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. You see, every sinner has blasphemed Christ at one point, but not every sinner looks upon Christ and has the gall to say his works are empowered by Satan. But it's not just the scribes who are rejecting Jesus' teaching. At the same time, members of his own family think that he's completely lost his mind and they come to try and take him home for his own safety and no doubt for the honour of their own family name. And how does Jesus respond? Mark 3, verses 34 and 35. And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. 
The spiritual family of Christ consists of those who submit to Christ and to his teaching. And the picture of those sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to his every word, could not be more distinct, more contrary to those claiming he was Satan's vessel or that he was insane. And on top of these responses is that of the people in general, the, the crowds that followed him. Some followed Jesus in the hope of receiving physical healing. Some followed because they, they liked what Jesus said. But not all these people became disciples. You see, the initial need or interest was not always a sign of a heart that had been truly warmed to Christ. They were there for themselves, not out of genuine love for Christ. And for a variety of reasons, they would eventually turn away as well. And then all of this culminates at the beginning of chapter 4. After Jesus' confrontation with the scribes and his family, Jesus got on with the work that he'd come to do. In Mark 4 verse 1 we read, And again he began to teach beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. But from this point... His teaching takes on a distinct manner. Look at verse 2. And he was teaching them many things in parables. See, up until this moment, Jesus' preaching and his teaching is crystal clear. But now he starts filtering his teaching through parables, short stories or analogies in which truth is either conveyed or concealed to the hearer to those whose hearts have been warmed to Christ. His teaching in parables causes them to approach him and to seek their meaning. To those whose hearts are cold, even if they don't appear to be on the outside, nevertheless, for them, the parables serve as a stumbling block. They're only interested in the superficial, so that anything which causes them to think harder means they will inevitably turn away. Isn't that the point of the parable of the soils? The illustration of the seed being sown into the different types of soil. Some people are like the hard soil in which Jesus' teaching is outrightly rejected. And in Jesus' day, the scribes and the Pharisees certainly fit that bill. Even his own family fell into that category to begin with. Some people, however, give the impression that they believe Christ but their hearts are really like the rocky or thorny soil in which seed is sown and it kind of seems to take root, but it doesn't produce lasting fruit. Whereas those who truly belong to Christ, whose hearts have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, they're like the good soil. When seed is thrown into it, it takes root and it grows and it produces an abundant and lasting harvest. These belong to Jesus' spiritual family. And the reality is that all the soil was bad until it was cultivated. Every human being is born a sinner and has fallen short of the glory of God. Those who have responded to Christ in repentance and faith have been enabled to do so only by the grace of God. 
That's why we continue to pray for those around us who do not acknowledge Christ, that by God's grace, he would soften their hearts, cleanse them and enable them to turn to Christ and be saved. Jesus had experienced a variety of responses to his clear teaching. And when he begins to talk to the crowds in parables, it's a means of sorting out the true expressions of faith from the false. That's exactly what Jesus points out to the disciples when they they come to him privately and ask him about the parables. Look at Mark chapter 4, verses 11 to 12. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. To those who are genuine believers, the parables will be a means of further spiritual growth. To those who are false converts, the parables will be a means of judgment. And this brings us to our text for today, Mark 4, verses 21 to 25. All that we've looked at has been necessary background information to understand our passage before us. So, with the context established, let's read Mark 4, verses 21 to 25. And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given." And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. These words of our Lord are extraordinarily profound and weighty. The question we have to ask is to what exactly is he referring? Discerning that has been an especially difficult task for me this week as there are a variety of ways that uh, people have understood this passage. Now, what's been said of these words are truths uh, that are found elsewhere in Scripture. But the question is, what is the best meaning for these words in this context? What's the interpretation that takes every aspect into account? We're looking for an interpretation where everything fits. You ever put something together like a a flat pack from those big hardware stores and you had a few parts left over? And you're like, well, it's standing and it looks good enough, so we'll just hide those in a drawer somewhere. That's never how we are to approach Scripture. It's God's inspired word, and as such, it is inerrant. It doesn't contain error. It doesn't contain contradictions. And so we are to humble ourselves before God's word, so that if we discover an interpretation that takes things into account in a better way than than what we've previously thought, then we're willing to change our view towards that. So to help you see what I mean and to help you understand the process of interpreting a text, 
I want to show you a little bit of the exegetical journey that I've been on this week. So the first thing I thought is that the lamp referred to Jesus. Initially, I, I sided with those who thought that the lamp referred to Jesus. Why is that? Well, in the Greek text, there is a, a definite article before the word lamp. Now, a definite article is translated as the word the, right? Unfortunately, the English text translates it with an indefinite article, which is the word a, a. So in English, verse 21 reads, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? Now, that's a problem because it's ignored that there really is a definite article before the word lamp. Jesus doesn't speak of a lamp, but the lamp. And of course, we know Jesus says of himself in John chapter 8, I am the light of the world. If Jesus was speaking about himself, then he could be referring to himself as the one who was hidden at the moment, only to be fully revealed through his death and resurrection. Now, I thought I was onto a winner here. But then I was reading a commentary where the author pointed out that there is a definite article before the word lamp. It is the lamp. But he went on to point out that there was also a definite article before every noun in this verse. I don't know how I missed that, but I did. And so it should literally be translated, is the lamp brought in to be put under the basket or under the bed and not on the stand. And so this means that we can't place greater emphasis on the lamp because there's emphasis on all the nouns in this verse. And that's actually why we see it translated in English as a lamp and a basket and a bed and a stand. It's the same emphasis on all of them. Well, if the lamp is not referring to Jesus, what else could it mean? That led me to another discovery uh, where I thought the light referred to the good works of believers. I found one commentator who highlighted that Jesus had orally used the illustration of a light not being covered over. In Matthew 5, Jesus declared to his followers, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The commentator I found saw a direct connection between what Jesus said here and, and what he said later in our text in Mark 4. And he saw another link between the, the parable of lamp and the parable of the soils that we just read. You see, if light is an illustration of good works, then it's essentially synonymous with the fruit that is produced by the good soil when the seed is planted in it. If that is the case, then the parable of the lamp is saying virtually the same thing as the parable of the soils. So in Mark 4, when Jesus asked, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not understand, he's saying, according to this interpretation, he's saying that when he's lit the lamp of his people's hearts, they are to display that light as if they were on a stand for all to see. Now again, I thought I was onto a winner. But the problem was that however hard I tried, I could not make the next verse fit with this interpretation. You see, what would it mean then when Jesus said, For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest? 
nor is anything secret except to come to light. It could be referring to the hidden motivations of people's hearts. Jesus could be explaining that while these inner motivations may remain hidden for a time, this is a result of God's providential means, so that they can be revealed at the right time. If they remain hidden, then we trust this is part of God's sovereign plan. This does link back to the parable of the soils and the way that people sometimes express outward faith in the gospel, but that faith has no root in their hearts. It's what Jesus could be saying here. But it seems a bit disjointed. The real problem with this interpretation is it suggests that something different is being referred to in verse 21 and then in verse 22. When a simple reading of these verses seems to suggest that both verses are talking about the same thing. So where does that leave us now? Well, I think the parables of the lamp and the measure are parables about the parables. I think they are parables that help us understand the reason for the parables and the proper response to them. I didn't come to this conclusion on my own. I had some help in commentaries, but there were some things that that came to light. See, as I was reading through the whole of Mark 4, I noticed some very helpful little aspects in these texts. So notice in verse 33 to 34, Mark says this, With many such parables he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples he explained everything. So here we learn that Jesus only explained the parables to his disciples when he was with them in private. Looking at the next two verses, we learn what happened after Jesus finished his teaching that day. Verses 35 and 36. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And notice that curious little phrase, they took him in the boat just as he was. It means that once Jesus got into the boat to start teaching the crowd, he didn't get off the boat. Instead, when evening came, his disciples simply rode away from the crowd with Jesus already in the boat. And these little facts are vital to understanding Jesus' teaching in this section. To help us to see that one of these things is not like the other. You see, there is the teaching about the soils, there's the teaching about the lamp, the teaching about the measure, the teaching about the scattered seed, the teaching about the mustard seed. But one thing extra is mentioned in this section that's very different. And that's what we read in verses 10 to 20. It begins with, in verse 10 with these words, And when he was alone... Those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. What we understand is that Mark has imported into this section a discussion that happened between Jesus and his disciples sometime after his afternoon of teaching the crowds. Now, it may not have happened very long after. Perhaps it even happened on the boat as they were rowing away. Jesus at that time being alone in the sense of not being surrounded by the crowds doesn't really matter how long after it happened 
Mark is simply explaining that it did take place later and his language allows for it to have taken place later without in causing any errors in the chronology. So on the shore that day, the crowds would have heard the parables in succession. When the crowd heard Jesus speak from the boat, they only heard the parables. He only gave the explanation to his disciples at a later stage. Yet as readers of Mark's completed gospel, we do have that interpretation given. But if you look to that section, you'll notice that Jesus gives more to his disciples than an explanation of one specific parable. Jesus also explains why he has begun teaching in parables. And I think that the reason Mark has included the wider section of verses 10 to 20 is that it helps us understand not simply the parable of the soils, but all the parables recorded in this chapter. The parable of the seed scattered, the, the parable of the mustard seed service, helpful developments of the parable of the soils. It's certainly not hard to grasp. There's seed that's scattered and sown and stuff grows. But the middle parables of the lamp and the measure are also connected, not to the parable of the soils, but to the reason Jesus gives for his teaching in parables. This explanation of the reason for teaching in parables is exactly what Jesus gives in the parable of the lamp. It's a parable that explains why Jesus is speaking in parables. And then the parable of the measure is then an exhortation to see the parables as a means of sorting out who the genuine believers are. Only those who receive the Spirit will desire to understand what Jesus is saying. In the Tyndale New Testament commentary series, Alan Cole suggests that the parables of the lamp and measure were given as an explanation for why Jesus was talking in parables. And I quote, Who would light a lamp and then deliberately hide it? If truth is temporarily hidden in the parables, it's only so that it may be later revealed. The ultimate purpose of a parable is therefore not to conceal truth, but to reveal it. End quote. And I think that's the best interpretation of these parables. I think it deals with all the aspects mentioned. I don't think there's anything in this interpretation that we have to quietly ignore and put into a drawer like some leftover screws. So what we have in the lamp and the measure are parables about parables. And in these parables, Jesus is explaining the providential reason for the parables and exhorting the proper response to the parables. And as we look through them in more detail now, you'll see what I mean. So he starts with the parable of the lamp. And it's a parable that explains the providential reason for the parables. Listen to verse 21. And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? This is a rhetorical question. Jesus is posing a question in which the answer is obviously no. No. I mean, what would be the point of bringing a lamp into a room only to cover it over? No one would do that. Now, some might dispute the inerrancy of Scripture by noting that in Luke's recording of this event, he has Jesus' words being in the form of a statement. In Luke 8, 16, and you can refer to this on your news sheet, in Luke 8, 16, Jesus says, 
No one, after lighting a lamp, covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. Well, who's right? Has Mark recorded Jesus' words? Or has Luke recorded Jesus' words? Well, the simplest answer would be that both have recorded Jesus' words. You see, both gospel writers have taken bits of what Jesus said to emphasise certain aspects. And when we understand this, we realise there's no contradiction at all. So Mark records how Jesus opened with a rhetorical question. He said, and he said to them, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? The answer to that is obviously no. But Jesus does spell it out. And that is what Luke records. Jesus says, of course not. So Luke 8, 16. No one, after lighting a lamp, covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. There's no contradiction there. There's just harmony. Now that also goes for two other things in this verse. Why does Jesus say the lamp is covered by a basket in Mark's gospel, but Luke records Jesus as saying the lamp was covered by a jar? Well, that's not a problem. Jesus could have said both things and Mark and Luke simply chose one covering. Or Jesus could have said the basket in his rhetorical question and then changed it to a jar when he made his statement. Both things cover over a lamp. So there's no problem there at all. There's one more thing. Why does Luke add the words so that those who enter may see the light? Well, to ask the question that way is to approach the text with undue scepticism. You see, Luke doesn't add anything. He simply records what Mark does not. Jesus said these words, but obviously Mark thought there was enough in the text for his readers to understand what Jesus was saying. And Jesus' rhetorical question, the point is clear. The purpose of light is to illuminate. And this purpose is thwarted if it is covered over. But Luke shows how Jesus made his illustration explicitly clear. A light is put on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. But if it's obscured or hidden, they cannot see the light. Once again, no problem. Now, when Jesus speaks about bringing a lamp, he's referring to an everyday object that is that all his hearers would have been familiar with. In those days, household lamps were generally a, a small terracotta container filled with oil that would burn with a floating wick. Uh, but the illustration, I guess, works exactly the same today with an electric lamp. I mean, no one buys a lamp, sets it up, plugs it in, turns it on, only to shove it under the bed where its light cannot be seen. Who would do that? No one. Everyone knows the purpose of a lamp is to illuminate and that that purpose will be rendered ineffective if the lamp is covered over. Now, here's the thing. When Jesus started teaching in parables, that's exactly what seemed to be happening. It was as if he was taking the light of his truth and deliberately obscuring it by presenting it in parables. But in this parable of the lamp, Jesus was explaining that there was purpose in what he was doing. And that purpose is stated in verse 22 when he said, For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. He's saying that he is teaching in parables for a distinct purpose. 
The only reason it's hidden is so that it might be made manifest. The only reason it appears secret is that it might come to light. And if we look back to verses 11 to 12, we understand this from Jesus' explanation that he, he gave to his disciples. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand lest they should turn and be forgiven. Parables are a means of sorting out the wheat from the chaff. For those to whom the Spirit of God has been given, the parables would be a means for growth in Christ. But for those who remained apart from Christ, the parables were a stumbling block and a sign of judgment. Remember that the turning point, the reason why Jesus began teaching the crowds in parables was the rejection that he faced in Capernaum by the scribes and by his own family and the continued nominal assent by the general public. And yet faced with the same evidence for who he was, there were others who willingly sat at his feet listening to his every word. And that can only be explained by the grace of God. It's interesting the things that churches try to do to draw a crowd. But here we see Jesus doing the exact opposite. He's purposefully obscuring the truth in parables, but with the confidence that his sheep will hear his voice. In the providence of God, the divine guiding of the world towards his sovereign purposes... We see in the telling of the parables a means of revealing the true people of God. The light of his truth will shine through as people grow in their understanding of the truth. If you compare this with what Luke records of Jesus' words, it may seem that there's another contradiction. Because in Mark's gospel, Jesus is distinctly giving a reason for why he's speaking in parables. Whereas in Luke's gospel, Jesus is making a statement and again to Mark's record, verse 22, for nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. Now listen to Luke's record, for nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. Well, should we be concerned about this? Not at all. Why should we simply not think that Jesus said both things? In Mark records Jesus' initial words, which give the purpose for his teaching in parables. Luke records what Jesus said next, which gave a promise that what he spoke in parables would be brought to light. There's purpose and there's promise, but there's no problem. But that actually does present a problem for those who outwardly give assent to Christ, yet are still inwardly in rebellion against him. You see, it means that in the divine providence of God, you will be shown for who you are. You cannot hide forever. You cannot pretend forever. There will be a sifting and a sorting, and the true intentions of your heart will be revealed. So take this passage as a warning ahead of time to reflect with true honesty about your relationship to Jesus Christ. Here is an opportunity for you to repent of your ways and to fully submit to God's Son and to his word. As Jesus declares, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. 
When Jesus taught this to the crowds on the shore, he was calling them to think hard about what they were hearing in the parables. And it's no less the same call for all who read these words today. And this challenge comes out very clearly in the following parable, the parable of the measure. In this parable, we see Jesus exhorting the proper response to the parables. Hear his words again. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. So Jesus reiterates the importance of people truly hearing what he has said. And doing so, he uses the concept of measuring as a synonym for hearing. To hear properly is to have a full measure, to fill the cup to the brim. The phrase, with the measure you use, it will be measured to you, is used by Jesus elsewhere. In Matthew 7, he says this, Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce you will be judged, and with the measure you use it will be measured to you. There the phrase is used to denounce the hypocritical judging of another person, otherwise you'll receive judgment upon yourself. But the principle is the same as what we find in the context of Mark 4. And what is that principle? Is that you get what you give. In Luke 6, Jesus uses the phrase in connection to forgiveness. But he makes the principle very clear. Luke 6, 37-38. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. So there it is at the beginning of verse 38. Give, and it will be given to you. So in thinking about how this relates to Jesus' parables, he's making clear that if a person pays attention to what they hear, there will be tremendous blessing. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you and still more will be added to you. For the one who sees Jesus' parables as an opportunity to grow in the knowledge of the kingdom, they'll receive more than they ever thought possible. This didn't mean the disciples understood the parables without having asked Jesus. In fact, that was precisely what set them apart as disciples. See, They didn't understand, but they went to Jesus to find out. They desired to know more. And in that sense, it's a word of great encouragement to disciples. On the other hand, for those who use a small measure, for those whose heart is cold to Christ, they'll hear him speaking in parables and be turned off at the outset. There's no love for Christ, so there's no desire to come to him and plead for greater understanding. And so they remain obscured to the truth. Interestingly, verse 25 provides the reasoning for why you get what you give in relation to Jesus' teaching. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. More understanding of God's truth will be given to those who already have understanding of God's truth. 
But if you don't know God's truth, you will not receive any more. Now, how on earth does that work? How can you gain more truth if you have to have a knowledge of God's truth to begin with? Well, the answer is you can't. You can't. You can't do anything about that in your own strength and capacity. None of us can gain insight into God's truth by our own doing. But God, who is rich in mercy, makes us alive in Christ when the Spirit regenerates our hearts in connection to hearing the gospel. Sinners can only gain understanding God's truth in the first place by the sovereign grace of God. And that's why we read Jesus' words to his disciples in verse 11. And he explained to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. This speaks of God's gracious work in a sinner's heart. Only those touched by the grace of God have been given the ability to discern the significance of the parables. You know, they might not understand their meaning straight away, but there is a desire to understand, a desire to learn, a desire to submit to the truth of Christ. That is the sign that grace is at work in a person's heart. When a person starts seeking God, it's evidence that God has already sought them. And those who seek will find and find abundant blessing in Christ. But those who stumble at Christ's teaching, who refuse to grow in their understanding, who refuse to acknowledge and submit to the truth, well, this passage is a clear warning to act right away in repentance. Because it may be a sign that you do not have Christ at all, and one day, what you think you have, even that will be taken away. So in the parables of the lamp and the measure, we have from Jesus parables about parables. They explain the providential reason for the parables and they exhort the proper response to the parables. He knew that light was not meant to be hidden, but those around him needed to know that there was purpose behind what he was doing. The parables would be a sorting out of those who truly believed and those who outwardly professed belief, but inwardly their hearts remained closed to the gospel of life. And what's interesting to consider is that what Jesus did in the parables, God did in the life of Jesus himself. Alan Cole writes, In the case of Jesus, God is at one and the same time both veiled in him and revealed in him. But the ultimate purpose is that he may be revealed to all. Already to this point in Mark's gospel, we've seen Jesus silence the demons when they tried to confess his identity. Jesus has also commanded others not to tell what they've witnessed. And when they have, it's led him to conceal himself in desolate places. But through his death and resurrection, his glory would be revealed. And yet this will reach its zenith at his return. Jesus makes the declaration in Mark chapter 13, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. The assurance of Christ's return means we should pay attention to his teaching now. For to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Let's pray.
Lord, we thank you for what we read in this passage. Father, we pray that your spirit would be working to convict each one of us, that we might come to see Christ for who he truly is, that we might have a great desire to understand his words to us, that we acknowledge that uh, we are still uh, human, we are still fallen, that we will never understand him to the fullest, but that a desire to come to know him as a sign of your grace at work in us. Father, if there are those here today who are uh, inwardly rebelling against Christ, Father, I pray that by your Spirit you would open their hearts, that they would come to see what they are doing and that they would come to repent and to trust in Christ, the only Saviour of this world. Father, for those of us who have been touched by your grace, help us to be ever thankful and help us never to settle uh, for knowing enough about Christ, but that our desire would be to be conformed to him, to come to know him more and more each and every day. Thank you for his promises, his purposes. Thank you that we recognise they will all come to fruition. In his name we pray. Amen.